what Brooklyn sounds like. Hey, it's time for Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit. Yeah, and I'm Dr. Lisa. I give a shit. I give a shit about you. We really, I, you know, you, we all need this right now, right? Because, uh, you know what I think, you know what I think's going on out there? I think it's, we're getting to the end of winter. It's been like, I'm, I'm like, fuck. It hasn't really been winter, but I'm tired of gray, cold shit. So, uh, yeah, let's all, let's all bond on that. Okay. Okay, it's gonna get it's gonna get warm soon. It's very exciting. It's March. Um, I want to thank you for listening to doc, to Doctor Lisa gives a shit. As you may or may not know, I'm a completely untrained therapist. Uh, I've been doing this long enough, though, that I uh, have have done plenty. I have more experience. I have more clients than anybody than any real therapist. So, but please go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org. And check us out, okay? Um, we have a lot of merchandise. We have over 70 shows, every kind of show you can imagine. And uh, we also um, donate money, donate money, you know, get ready for tax season. That's next year. So, But donate this year. Anyway, I'm a little, I think I'm a little intimidated. I'm a little intimidated. I'm just going to, I just got to put that out there. Okay. I got to put that out there. That's my own doing. I've got like authority issues, countertransference. So I'm just going to put that out there. But I have this really um, super talented, super driven, I'm going to say organized. That's probably why it's the organ. Like I picture, this is what's happening. I'm picturing myself working for this guy and not doing a good job and him criticizing me. That's my, that's my counter transference. And that's why I'm nervous. But let me, let, let me, let me just tell you a little bit about him and, and uh, what I don't even know. I mean, this is, you're, this is live. This is the first time I've met, we've met, but I, um, am really, uh, hugely impressed and a big fan of the Brooklyn Comedy Collective, which he's the founder and director of. And it's been kind of a little bit, you know, I've, I've, I've taken interest in comedy over the last over 10 years, you know, occasionally. But this place is really, really, really different. And, um, it's, it's the vibe. And I'm going to assume that the vibe is coming from Philip Markle, my guest. But I also really want to give a shout out to, um, the teacher that I'm taking, this is the second time I've taken this class with Shalewa Sharp. And there's something really uh, fabulous about her as a teacher. So I'm just saying like my experience has been exemplary and I've done a lot of different comedy classes and I've been to a lot of the show. The shows are great. The place is great place to see shows and the uh, website is um well it's at 167 gram i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you you know what i'm gonna do hi philip will you tell us about the brooklyn comedy collective and then i'm gonna say a little bit about you so people know who you are before i start talking to you okay promote the brooklyn comedy (laughs) collective for me please thank Uh, you gladly and hi dr lisa thank (laughs) you for having me 
Uh, so the BCC, or the Brooklyn Comedy Collective, it's an alt theater in East Williamsburg. Uh, we reopened there after lockdowns, but uh, we now offer classes and shows, shows Tuesday to Sunday nights on two floors there at the venue. It's called Eris. And then we have two classroom spaces, which, you know, because it's just a barnyard of comedy, one's called the doghouse <laughs> and one's called the pig pen. Barnyard. It's a barnyard of comedy all within two minutes of each other. And, uh, you know, people are just casually calling it Chuckle Square now because it's just all this comedy and learning happening right there. Um, but yeah, the vibes are, um, the vibes aren't just set by me. I, it, it's, it's a collective in that like it really is built on the, the love and support and hard work of hundreds of people yeah. that, that give a shit about it. Um, and I like the, the, some of the vibes are like, nobody's cooler than anybody else. We're all just freaks and weirdos doing this weird thing in Brooklyn. Um, and to really find your voice and what makes you unique, what can you say in your own way that no one said before. And, um, we have this phrase, uh, fuck it, love it, which is like, uh, fuck it because we're not going to pretend like, uh, comedy is this thing we have to put on a golden calf or a pedestal. Fuck it. We're just fucking around and then love it because we don't, we don't want to be assholes that are like, fuck you. We just do whatever we want. We love this thing. We love each other. And so the fuck it, love it is like the yin yang way of describing the vibe. There you go. I, I really I really like that. Also, it's pretty evenly split between stand up and improv. And and sketch. And, and then we sketch. have musical improv. We have clown okay. taught by Tally Medell. So we're hitting a lot of and one man shows and storytelling too. So Well there you go, folks. Yeah. So don't like get it in your head, oh, it's you know, just stand up because it's it's everything and yeah. a mishmash of all of that. Um so anyway, I, I honestly can't I mean, I'm I'm a very satisfied customer. Woohoo. Um, but let me tell you a little bit about Philip. So Philip is, um, I would say he, I, I would categorize him as an overachiever, except he's really multi-talented. So Philip is, um, really good at a lot of things. He's really good at writing. He's really good at singing. He's really good at writing music, uh, long form, uh, uh, pilots, TV pilots. He's done it all. And he, um, has uh, performed and taught students internationally from Berlin to Bali. He graduated from Northwestern University, which is a really good school, and he <laughs> trained in improv in Chicago at the Annoyance. Like, I, you know how I am, guys. You know, I'm just going to go through it like this. Director for four years. Art- so now he's a founding art but Brooklyn Comedy Collective. Hot... You know what? There's so much stuff. Do your own fucking research, okay? <laughs> you know what? There's just Philip is an incredibly multi-talented performer. And just go and look at and writer and go and look at philipmarkle.com and then follow him on social media at Philip Sparkle. That's one L in Philip. Okay, that's it. Yeah, people that have two L's. I'm like, are you trying to give everyone a seizure? I L L I. It's too much. I just that's- do very grateful my parents just said the one L. Yeah. Oh, that <laughs> is my my husband's name is Philip. Is it his last name? No. His first name. Yeah, with, okay. two, with two L's. But I still, honestly, I call him Phil and I got it confused. So. Yeah, my email is just Phil Markle because no one could ever figure out which one it was. Um, but I guess your husband and I have to fight now. You I mean, there's, there's no <laughs> other resolution. We just got to come I don't to blows. Know. <laughs> well, he only, you're, you're more, much more of a, do people call you Philip? 
I, it's truly audience choice. It can be Philip, Phil, Sparkle, Markle, Pip. Uh, when I went to college, I insanely decided to rebrand myself as Pip. So for the mm. first semester, I went around and literally told everyone, hi, I'm Pip. Um, and then that lasted about three months before everyone, including me, realized that was insane. And so I went back to Philip. Pip. Pip. Yeah, Philip. I'm, I, I'm happy with Philip. You look like a Philip. Like, yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, Philip. And then I guess I'm, I go to Burning Man. I've been to Burning Man a bunch and there my name is, uh, Pip as well. It's like my playa name. Yeah. I don't know. You know, Burning Man seems like all bets are off to me. (laughs) And no one remembers anything I've went through. But anyway, so here's what's in, here's what, when I'm, here's, so I'm going to make assumptions about you and then we're going to find out. So, okay, okay, let's do it. Let's Let's do that. Let's do that. And then, then we'll do, this is, so I think that, um, you're from a you're you're a really high achiever i think i think that you've been like a really great student um i've read about i did my research i did my research guys you were brought up as strictly catholic mm-hmm. um there's a story on on your medium um about you coming out in in when you were 12? No, it was senior year, and it was after a four-day silent retreat with the Jesuits, a Jesuit silent retreat uh, called Kairos. And the fourth day, you're supposed to live the fourth. And I, because, again, I'm insane, got up in front of my high school senior class after the homily. We were like, they're like, okay, anyone want to give reflections on the experience? And I got up there and I t- said, Jesus would want me to tell you all right now that I'm gay. Um, I mean, talk about a messiah complex, like me saying Jesus, talking about Jesus in my own lips through me. And then that was followed by like the greatest silence I've ever heard in my life. And then some like slow claps and shuffling and weirdness. And then the priest taking me aside afterwards, and I'll never forget what he said. He was, uh, he said, I'm, we're, we're so excited for this discovery you've had about yourself, and we can't wait to teach you about the power of lifelong celibacy as a gay <laughs> Catholic. And I was like, okay, girl, like, this is pretty manipulative. You can't say celibacy to a teenage boy ever. <laughs> no, I just come out. And then, you know, it, the, the coming out experience was like one of those highs that like, you know, uh, a true moment of uh, being fully in who mm-hmm, I was. Mm-hmm. Um, not, yeah. o- not only as like a, a Leo Moon performer and doing it in the most public way possible, but in just taking a huge risk to, to say something I'd never said before. Um, and then, you know, the, the, that was amazing. And then it was complicated after that, you know? Right, right, right. And you also came out to your mother and she accepted you, but then she followed up by giving you conversion pamphlets. Yeah, so what I'm seeing is somebody who really believed in the adults around them and what they were being told and then was betrayed by two two of your major authority figures. Well, I betrayed is like a strong word. I my my dad is now fully accepting and you know saw me at joe's pub singing a song called gay bathhouse i heard <laughs> you know gay bathhouse and my poor dad just like staring at me talking about you know being fucked in a sling um and so he's like <laughs> i love it <laughs> you know so like he's cool with it even if it's not his necessary cup of tea and he took his time with it and my mom it was a lot more complicated i think she got a lot of bad advice from the priest she went to and the community did not um support her wanting she always said she loved me but 
she couldn't love, you know, love the sin, love the sinner, right. hate the sin. Right. And, and so it was really, really um, awful. Um, and it got better over time. You know, she wrote me a note um, saying that she accepted me and my sexuality. She gave me that note. Um, and then she passed away um, on my birthday. And it was like this crazy wow. sort of bridge that had been, you know, mostly, mostly met, but um, had never been fully healed. And so and that was a hard it, And thing. it was really sudden when she passed, yeah, right? Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit? It just that? happened the night of my birthday. I mean, talk about workaholicism. I, I just committed to cleaning my entire room and apartment, taking a bubble bath, turning off my phone, being like, I'm going to start 27, uh, year of heaven, like just really you know, um, uh, start fresh. And then I woke up the next day to that nightmare of like, you know, 50 missed calls and, uh, and, and the hell of just, you know, she had accidentally overdosed overnight. And, you know, it was just, it was. She overdosed because she was a doctor, right? I want people to understand. Yeah. And I I think, I mean, I think it's public enough. I don't want to speak to it too specifically, but yeah, she had just, you know, the danger of self-medicating, um, and accidents Mm -hmm. that can happen that way. Um, but it wasn't like an addiction. That's what I kind of want to make clear. I think. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, and, and when, when I say betrayal, I don't mean that actually the people personally betrayed you. What I mean is that you did the break, you were, you did, did in my mind, I'm going to say from, in my mind, uh, an incredibly brave, daring, and quote unquote, righteous, mm-hmm. righteous thing. And the feeling I'm getting, perhaps, is that, like, the priests wanted to honor it. They wanted to accept you, you know, in a way. In a limited way, In a way, like, their first instinct, they both knew, your mother and the priest. Yeah. The right thing to do is this guy. But then they couldn't handle it on their own, in their own way, right? Or in their own dogma. You know, what we run up against with, like, this is what, the greater organization says, you know, and I'm, I coming out back then, and this was 2004. It was a, it was a scarier time. Like there was what will and grace on television. There, (laughs) There wasn't a lot of open queerness. And so I think, you know, my parents had just both voted against gay marriage in California when really? that prop came up. So, you know, it was it was just a different time. And I'm I'm so happy that things today, you know, some some gays are like, you know, well, we suffered, you know, kids today have it so easy. They can just call them, you know, go, you know, discover themselves, whatever. And there's no risk. And I'm like, that's what I would have loved. You know, yes, this was a brave, crazy thing to do. Um, but I'm so happy the world has moved on and that people can change over time. And I think my mom was changing mm-hmm. in the way that I see my dad has changed. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's when you just get to know someone as a human being and them right. seeing their human vulnerability. You can't help but be moved if you're not weighed down by like the dogma of the Catholic church or something like that. Right, right, right. So how are you brought up? I mean, did you have brothers or sisters? Where'd you grow up? I grew up north of San Francisco. I went to a Catholic school in the city. So I always just say I'm from San Francisco because uh. I was there when it was cool <laughs> before it's all techie, blah, blah, blah. Um, a really great uh, experience in San Francisco. And then I have a younger sister who just had a kid. So I'm a gunkle. Oh, I'm seeing the whole. A gunkle. That's yeah, a new word for me. I love a it. A gunkle I'm seeing Isabel on um, 
uh, on Sunday. You're going to go fly out to Pittsburgh and Aww. help them. And Aww. yeah. And so my, my sister and I, we were three and a half years apart. We were always kind of in different fields doing our different things. Um, but it's just, you know, as we've gotten older, we've gotten closer and closer. And I'm really, really happy nice. for them. And they're, they're living like the family life. They have a house in Pittsburgh. Uh, Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's great. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I don't know what Pittsburgh should be a thing. You know? Yeah, right. Where you go in Pittsburgh, honey. <laughs> I, go to, I go to a gay festival called Honcho outside Pittsburgh and it's like queer utopia uh, run by Pittsburgh gays and I love it oh oh yeah so you grew up um I'm gonna say it's a suburb then of San Francisco in Marin County yeah Marin up County. on a hill yeah. and what did your parents do my dad's an accountant and my mom was a doctor um so neither of them performers um don't know where that came out in me um, but on like the business side of running the BCC, uh, I totally think I get that from like my dad. And I've always had like the business brain and the creative brain and the fight, the war that they go on with each other to both be expressed. I, I, I get pleasure in different ways out of both of them. I think in time, at times the business brain can be overwhelming and take up the creative room yeah. and the space and the air you need yeah. to come up with creativity. So that's always a challenge, but yeah, I get that from my dad for mm-hmm. sure. I think. Mm-hmm. And you're so you know, you're really driven. Were your parents driven or? Yeah. My the, my mom was one of the first female doctors to come out of Notre Dame. Oh, my God. She was incredible. She started her own practice after working at Kaiser. Wow. My dad started his own business. Yeah, my mom was incredibly brave, like starting, you know, it was, again, a different time. And mm-hmm. um, she was like, what do you mean women can't be doctors? Fuck you. So she did her she own thing. She sounds like such a great example. Yeah. It sounds like she gave you a lot of that. I'm going to I don't want to call it courage because I don't think it's courage. I think it's really more natural for you. But you're like the person who's going to speak up. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think before I came out, a lot of it was trying to be the perfect son and, you know, overachieve and all that. And then when I came out, it was like, well, this is the deepest part of me. And it got really hard when, like, the deepest part of me wasn't embraced, but all the golden child star, you know, you're doing this, you're going to college, like, you know, like, all of that was celebrated, but the core of me felt very um, unseen. And mm-hmm. so it then became a mission for me on stage, at least. Um, I went to school for theater and uh, mm-hmm. did a couple plays after college. And, um, you know, you go from doing great work in a class in college to doing uh, whatever garbage you can get cast in as a new actor in Chicago. Absolutely. And so I was like in these things that were I found pretty unfulfilling. And I was like, you know what, I am actually bored by this doing the same show that I don't like eight times a week. I want to write, I want to create. And that's how I got into comedy. And that's how I tried to become a gay wizard on stage to bring back the whimsy that you know authentic um uh earnest unironic big uh hit the pedal on the gas feeling and then my show sparkle hour which i still do every like third saturday at bcc is like gay church it's a celebration and it's wacky and ridiculous and i have amazing queer guests and then i always end with a moment of vulnerability because once you've earned the audience's trust that way you can be real in a way wow. And just say what's going on with wow. you right now. And then, you know, end on a big musical number or something. Because, you know, <laughs> leave, leave them with a little uh, earworm. So there's the, yeah, but um, so that's great that you you can create a platform where you feel safe. So do you think that what happened to you at the retreat um, was, is that like a really, that seems like it must have been a really life-changing. Is that as profound as I think it is it sounding? It sounds to me that like, it's kind of like a real boom moment where you were like, hey, this is who I am. And then like you weren't prepared for the way that it was received. 
Yeah, and and some people were were so welcoming. So I made deeper friendships with my high school friends mm-hmm. who now saw me fully as I was. I mm-hmm. kind of became the most popular kid in school for I don't know four days. Everyone was talking about it. I like the psycho did this, um, and then and then yeah, like I that was after four days of not talking, right? Yeah, four day silent retreat, and yeah. so I just told you I came back from this trip upstate with my dog Star, who I'm obsessed with, and we just spent four days in a cabin doing nothing. and And I find that like being the busy, busy bee, it's like you don't actually have moments of revelation so much unless you give them space. I did DJ for the first time last night and had a crowd of strangers dancing to my soul disco house. I'd never done that before. That was nascent. That was new, and that was like a a drug. But um, as far as like you know, how am I growing as a person? I believe in therapy. I believe in doing, you know, oodles of ketamine and tripping out and psychedelics and exploring it. But you need space to do that. And especially with our phones and the way that I feel like I have to constantly be on, reply to things right away. It's such a curse. And I really miss the pre-internet generation where like you had to call somebody's landline and there was just space to do nothing. And that was the pace of life. I so miss that. I want to read all the uh, different kinds of therapy that you've done besides ketamine, which you're kind of famous for, I understand. Yeah, I wrote a little medium article that was really personal called Ring Around the Neuroses, um, a catchy phrase. Um, and uh, it got picked up by AFP News, which is on Yahoo, but even it was published in Indonesia. And they took this like actually pretty hot photo of me with a bag of ketamine on my table. Which you can <laughs> buy for $450 from Getty. <laughs> I guess, yeah. And I... Uh, and uh, I talked about them, about my experience and what it was. And now everyone's talking about ketamine therapy. And I'm not here to say like, you know, obviously drug usage should always be moderated and responsible and under the care and supervision. But for me, it was at least temporarily like a, it was a nice reset of like clearing all the bullshit that I, I thought was important to me to be like, oh, yeah, I'm a human being. What's really important to me? Well, as a uh, hobbyist therapist, I'm, I mean, this is really I mean, I could really learn a lot from you. I mean, we could. We could do a whole session on on you t- teaching me about therapy, but because you started talk therapy when you were twelve, you've been on prescription antidepressants, all different ones. Are you on any now? I am. Yeah, I'm on Miss Wellbutrin. Oh, She's this nice. Must be really good. I like yeah. her the best. People like that. Yeah. Uh, uh, acid, of course. MDMA, ayahuasca. You smoked the toad twice. Oh yeah, I did. that's like That's the a nuclear big bomb deal. Of psychedelics. I very rare. Yeah, I, I the first time was pretty revelatory. The second time, I think too much. I, I really experienced my own death. <laughs> like I died. I felt Philip Markle evaporate into a static television screen of the universe, and it was oh, like wow. pretty terrifying. Um, <laughs> maybe good for long term. You know, I've got a little taste of what it's like to to fade away. Um, but yeah, that they're ve- that's very intense. And then uh, following a duck on mushrooms. And, oh, you said so mushrooms. Oh, yeah. I was in Amsterdam. I was in there. I got some mushrooms uh, and I, I did a lot and I was sort of freaking out. And so I just saw this duck in the Vondel Park or whatever it's called. And I was like, you know what? Just follow this duck. And I just I just got out of my bullshit. I'm like, I'm just going to watch and follow this duck. And it calmed my trip down by just following a duck for an hour. Wow. Whatever the duck that did, seems, I, I went with it. That's very uh, self, you know, good resources. Good <laughs> resources. That's why you can handle all this shit. Healers with psychic dogs, lucid, 
dreaming. There's too many. Yeah. Let me just let me just give you an idea, guys. So lucid dreaming, philosophy from Aristotle, meditation retreats, Burning Man, realistic, uh, realistic mystics, Mystic. magical thinking in Korean spas, timeline therapy, three week stint in Bali. Yeah, I went. To so Bali. you've been you've been to a lot of different kinds of therapy. Are you in therapy now? Yeah, I've been doing uh, EMDR, which was a new thing for me, and I've I like the I the eye stimulation. Yeah. It sort of hits your brain a different way. Because I feel with talk therapy, I got to the point where I could just talk about my problems forever or about behaviors, but the behaviors didn't change so much. I was just mm. repeating ad nauseum and getting pretty frustrated that I was talking about the same shit that I had come in mm. with three years before, mm. even though I felt like really comfortable with my therapist. So more active therapies like that have been pretty cool. You're an action-oriented person. Yep. And therapy is pretty passive, talk therapy. I wrote a poem once. I still remember (laughs) it. It's, I am a doer. I do all the time. And it goes on and on about how, like, I wish I could just be, but being's not what I can do. So I do this, do that, (laughs) do him, do her. And it's just this, it's it's kind of the way I've always been, and I've always tried to change it, but it doesn't really change. It's your nature. Yeah. It seems like it's got a lot of uh, physical. It's a very physical part of your physicality, right? Oh, I like I like to walk fast. I I really enjoy. I've gotten much more into uh, working out in my body and like feeling say, good about athletic. that. Well, COVID was like a big thing where I just sat on a couch for two years, put on 15 pounds and, you know, Uh, felt pretty awful and was drinking a bottle of wine a night. And, you know, like the whole rest of the world. Yeah, we were. It was a really and running a theater at the time. You know, I watched my whole business fall apart, was doing online comedy, which is as bad as it sounds. And um, it was a really dark moment in my life. Mm, And I mm. almost I actually this is true. I almost walked away. I came very close to just saying, fuck it, I'm done. I'll do something else. This is too hard. It was within an inch, and it was just with the help of Maya Sharma, my associate that has been with the BCC mm-hmm. for years now, to, that got me just over that hump to have the courage to reopen it. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting because it's it's so successful to me now. It's blown it up in is. a way that is so. It's what I always wanted. I started it in 2018, but you know the fact that I came that close, really that close to walking away. And right before I made that decision, I took a 24 day road trip with my dog in a Mini Cooper from San from San Francisco to New York down through San Love Diego it. and across. And that cleared my head again. The silence, the stillness mm-hmm. to make a, before making mm-hmm. a big call like that. Well, you know, it's funny. It sounds like when you you're so um, let's say you know motivated that it's or or, or work you know productive pr- productivity oriented that when you were when you have downtime, that has to be productive too. Yeah. So then you probably go into like a self, you know, um, you know, self discovery mode, self inventory mode when you have time to, alone. Yeah, and I feel like well, carving time like going to a Korean spa all day and spa castle and just sitting mm-hmm. there and making the time where I'm I'm honoring the commitment to not check my phone or mm-hmm. something is a lot more successful for me than oh I'm just gonna have a chill night at home like I'm not gonna be on Instagram the whole fucking night and right. watching a movie and then pausing it and doing something else you know I don't think I, I think this is pretty universal our brains have yeah. been completely corrupted by do 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 technology. So does somebody like you have time for relationships? Mm-hmm. Do you? I'm dating right now, and it's always been something that, you know, to be completely transparent, like I, I my longest relationship was like nine months. Uh, uh-huh. And I do, I'm so into new things that like the start of it is always exciting, but then I would find discomfort or I actually didn't feel like I could always say my discomforts early in earlier relationships. And so they would kind of peter out or I would bail and... And, and then like having the time to like really commit to it. Um, 
it, it, it's a struggle. Um, I do feel like I've gotten much more communicative about like, I can show anger or frustration to someone and not feel terrified that they're going to reject me. Um, but that's been, that's been something that I've had to work on. Yeah, because you're around people all the time. I mean, you must meet a lot of people. He's really hot, huh? um, you know, personable, all that stuff. It's definitely like, I, I don't think there's a dearth. I don't think you have a problem with finding candidates. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, I mean, this is a cliche and I'm not saying I believe it, but the therapist, the therapist would say that you're avoiding intimacy by being so busy. Totally. I think there's truth in that. I think, you know, we always do what's most comfortable for us. And for whatever reason, being a hyperactive workaholic has become something that I get, I at least get dopamine hits from, you know, but Mm -hmm. if you ask me after a ketamine or some clearing or some stillness what's important to me it would be the former of like finding that deep connection Mm -hmm. and you're right i do i I know a lot of people and as i i think when i was first doing comedy or starting out i wanted to know and be friends with as many people as possible Mm -hmm. i wanted that with and now all i care about is depth um and really managing like my friendships are so important to me i have i have so many ride or die girls in various friend groups that like means so much to me and yeah. I, I would just like that you know i have that with my dog we're ride or die i've saved her life five times now literally oh wow, really oh wow. star's always trying to escape this mortal coil <laughs> she had cancer as a puppy when wow. i adopted her oh yeah they fucked up they, they gave me her as a one-year-old and didn't tell me she had cancer so i adopted a dog with cancer got her removed twice took her then to a brooklyn brooklyn dog nutritionist who was like a witch she had this thick accent she was like you know we got to figure out why your dog's blowing cancer and she just like did this diet and stars never had cancer again really Um, but she did eat enough rat poison to kill her four times over Uh, on the road trip in san diego had to pump her stomach uh, and then um you know she's almost been mauled to death by dogs and if you want to ask me would i uh, pick up my dog over my head and kick off dogs trying to kill her the answer is yes i mm -hmm. I have done that and i would do that Uh uh-huh this is this is a very expensive animal. <laughs> Girl, she cost me everything, but she's giving me so much. Uh, I love no, my baby. No, no, I bet you are a really good friend. I get the feeling. I mean, I definitely. You probably work as hard as your friendships as everything else. But I am gonna be a. This this is really. I feel obnoxious saying this, but I'm. But but you know, I'm obnoxious. I guess. Um, I'm gonna say that you avoided. You changed the topic when I asked you um, about. Um, about intimate relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I is mean, that annoying that I said that? I'm sorry. No, I can't. It's really, it's pretty hard to phase me. You can sit, you can call me out on my bullshit if you feel like I'm, I'm bullshitting no, or avoiding it. I don't know anything. I'm not. I don't have any. You know, I don't mean to like sound like I have training because I don't. Um, but I'm just wondering if, like, if you really, like, really, like, is it that you don't have long-term relationships because you really don't want them or are you really satisfied like your life is busy and full like how much how much do you really want them i'm i'm tired of being alone uh in in the space of when i'm not around friends and comedy and community Mm -hmm. i'm tired of uh, carrying all this myself and what i really want is to be with someone that can share my life and i share his life and and I, I mean, that's, that's what I'm really, 
I, if you asked me, like, was I ready for that? I would say, like, even two years ago, I was not. It was especially mm-hmm. during the pandemic. A lot of people fell in love in the pandemic, and I, I, I didn't have sex for two years. <laughs> I was like <laughs> terrified. You know, that, that's, that's, that's an exaggeration. It's not <laughs> well, totally a lot true, of but people, it was yeah, pretty we, dry. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, but now, like, it's, it's priorities, right? Like, I, in my therapy yesterday, I was like, I have to stop uh, micromanaging. I have to create boundaries. I have to just turn the email off because it's just come to the point where, like, whatever dopamine or thrill I get out of that, it is coming at the expense of my whole being and it's exhausting me. And I'm not 27 anymore. I can't just do that and then go out to 4 a.m. and be like, no problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm trying to make room and I'm moving the relationship in terms of priorities higher and it's hard because my schedule i showed you the calendar it's just nuts no, right now no no i mean you're but, you're you're totally like yeah i mean it's crazy you could do anything really i think with the bit talent and thank you. drive you have i don't know why you chose something that this hard well the, the answer <laughs> as an artist was like we talked about this too is that like when you're an artist you can feel powerless like you're waiting for in this business, yes. like a golden goose to be like you and yeah. right time, right place. And you're, and you're ready for it and your material is good to go. And so like the idea, I, I know I have friends that like move to LA and are doing little to nothing and just waiting for something to happen. That's, that's my hell. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah. that's what would make me, I think, crazy. So building a business and a platform, not only for myself, but for lots of people I care about. And I walk in and I get this like secondary joy yeah. of seeing, you know, people don't even know me. I'm just yeah. watching their show or the open mic. And it's like that, that gave me some stability in an otherwise chaotic universe. Mm-hmm. So do you think that maybe you're, and I understand that the gatekeepers, the need to, um, the need, the drive to have creative control over your own product and your own opportunities. I mean, a hundred percent. And this is, I think, ultimately, honestly, when I'm thinking about it now, what I really, really, one of the things that I really mostly respect about you is that you made it happen in such a major way on your own. It's very impressive because a lot of people, a lot of creative people complain about that they don't get opportunities. Um, You know, I mean, I've, I, I've, I've gone out and done done a bunch of guerrilla things and stuff like that, but the idea of actually making a formal situation uh, for yourself and other people to do it, not like one one off guerrilla thing, is very very impressive. So I'm wondering now that this is really, and I noticed from living in the neighborhood how it really took off after the pandemic, mm-hmm. right? And it's grown. I can see it in my neighborhood. And so do you think that maybe you're getting to the point now where you've satisfied that need? Yeah. And look, the job of every owner uh, of a business is to be replaced, to replace yourself, right? And so there are like upwards, there's 20 employees now that work at BCC. Wow. So, you know, they're handing it off and trusting and letting go. That's my new thing that I'm working on to be um, less, you know, actively doing or managing or micromanaging or looking at everything myself and to trust and let go so that I do have room in my life for whether it's new things like new, like more uh, time spending on relationships or like I said, like DJing last night mm-hmm. felt like the first comedy show I've ever done. It was so thrilling oh, wow. to do on a real, you know, pioneer system yeah. to spin for strangers I didn't know yeah. and to see what was working and what was not. And it, it was a beginner's mind, you know, wow. it was so exciting. So wow. I was like, yep, yeah, I want to make room in my life wow. for, for that newness. What, what venue, if I can ask? At the theater, at Aris, oh! where we do all our shows. So it was in our home backyard. Oh! 
wow. Yeah. And a shout out to Eris. You know, they've, they've hosted the BCC. The relationship is symbiotic. So I basically knocked on their door one day. I was like, yo, what happens in here before 10 p.m.? And because they, they're a nightclub, right? And they were mm-hmm. like, well, not much really. And so we basically do comedy there Tuesday to Sundays till uh, 10. And then they take over with late night programming and dance parties uh, and, it's a symbiotic relationship where, like, you know, we can share, collectively share the, uh, the, the, the use of a space yeah. and, and to make it all. Um, oh, that's really And it's perfect. Smart. They have a great, a huge main stage, big, like, burning man ran into off-Broadway and had a freak child baby. And then this, like, murder dungeon improv basement. And they're both so cool. And, yeah. again, everything's a minute away. Yeah, I remember the the first time I walked in there, guys. I was really surprised. I was like, this little, it was a little comedy place, whatever. And and like, this is their theater? Shit. I mean, it puts like uh, UCB to shame (laughs) by a long shot. The old UCB. Remember that place? Let's not. Um, No, let's. Oh, never mind. Had, did you have you have you have you ever participated in UCB? Yeah, I mean, I took some classes there, and our philosophy to improv is very different from theirs. Not to say like one is right or yeah, one is yeah, the yeah. other. Um, and then like they're, they're, I know they're reopening, and I think that's exciting. There was a lot of problematic behavior and, and tone that they set yeah, in the know, last time they know. ran. Uh, we pay performers and producers of our shows. We were one of the first comedy theaters to do that because back then everyone just worked for free. And uh, it's not always like a ton of money. They make like fifty percent right. of the box. Doesn't matter. But it's about saying that there is a value and there is a payment for you helping to bring in audiences with us. Um, and and yeah, so um, that's yeah. Well, that embodies the word collective, which is mm-hmm. so much. I personally am so much more in into than the word club. Yeah, and I mean that's also, a huge difference. We also make uh, collective decisions. So I learned a long time ago that um, if I try and make decisions on my own, I'm gonna get it wrong. You know, no one gets it right all the time, and I'm I have biases, I have blind spots. Mm-hmm. So between me and Maya Sharma and Julian Hernandez, who are like the triumvirate right now that run the theater, really between programming and managing it, and me as the artistic director, any big decision we make collectively, mm-hmm. and there's transparency around finances and what people mm-hmm. make, and like you know, just like why. Why, why not um, put three minds to use to make more ethical decisions, mm-hmm. um, even if at the end of the day I'm the owner and I'm financially responsible and have to, you know, shepherd the right, whole your thing. Name is on, and, and my name is on the your line. Name is on and, the, right. Yeah, but um, you know, it's I really believe in the power of collective mm-hmm. decision making. Wow, good management, you know. And you were saying that um, you have actually been doing some corporate. Tell us about the stuff that you've been doing with corporate. Oh, sure. We taught 120 employees at Wasserman yesterday. I had four teachers. Wasserman and is? It's a, uh, like an activation company. They're pretty well known. I mean, we taught, company. we've taught at EY. We've taught a lot of Fortune 500 companies. We taught small ones. We reopened Brooklyn Borough Hall for the Brooklyn Borough President, Antonio Reynoso. Wow, really? We're going to do that again for Women's History Month. Wow. Um, so we're like doing all these gigs around. And when it comes to like the corporate side, like it's not a comedy class. It's teaching. So what improv did for me, improv made me a more uh, open person, more confident in my own choices, more willing to embrace the weirdness, the freakness, the mistakes, and then to be a better teammate. And so we translate all those skills through improv games and exercises. And we followed this methodology, the methodology that you mentioned earlier about Aristotle called ethos, pathos, logos, which is really getting people to pay attention. Ethos is like the ethics of a person or basically what's the vibe? How can you create a vibe where everyone feels like they're seen? Pathos is leading with vulnerability and emotion. And instead of just, you know, 
um, making it all about logos, the data or like the emails, and this is what you need, treating and, and making people feel heard. And so improv teaches these improv skills and our workshops, you know, I did a lot of corporate workshops or back in the day with, you know, other companies when I was learning this, that was just like zip, zap, zap and mm-hmm. games and it meant nothing. Mm-hmm. And so we really care about attaching tangible takeaways like uh, the fuck it, love it thing I said, or this idea of assuming competence when, you know, I ask, you know, who's nervous about improv? And I'm like, everyone raises their hand. I'm like, that's totally normal. It's public speaking <laughs> is most people's number one fear and improv is public speaking without knowing what you're going to say. So <laughs> run for the doors. You can still escape. But if you can, but assuming competence is like, just pretend you're amazing at this. Instead of being like, I don't think I'm good. Just say, I'm a rock star and I'm going to make mistakes and that's how I'm going to learn. And if you can make the fear of failing less than the joy of going for it and trying, it just opens up your whole life and workplace wow. culture. Wow. I'm, I'm so, I wanted to, no, but you know, I was thinking that like your, your way of looking at running your business, uh, probably translates through these workshops to actual corporations, you know, the way they run their business. They probably relate to what you're saying in a way. Yeah. And I mean, we have uh, amazing teachers that teach us as well. I also share my personal perspective of being a small business owner that, um, and you know, I ran the Annoyance Theater when it was, uh, that was my mm-hmm. place that really could let my freak flag fly in Chicago. I brought it out to New York. Um, but at the time, you know, I was 28. And so mm-hmm. I, I made every mistake in the book between mm-hmm. wanting to be everyone's friend and buddy, even though I was running the thing to, uh, you know, I've, I've just had to learn through trial and error and, and I've learned things like never send an angry email. If you can, I'm still working on that oh, one. Oh, really? Like, That's good to just know. Send the email to yourself and, and sleep on it. Take oh, a Xanax wow. if you have to, just, just let it go and you'll wake up the next morning with different perspective. And nine out of 10 times that conversation is going to go so much better in person following the ethos, pathos, logos thing, because who you are and, and how you feel can come across before you get to like the difficult thing that you need to share if there's some sort of like difficulty. Well, that's good advice. I'm going to write that don't down. Don't, girl. And I, I, I <laughs> still struggle with it. Just don't send the fucking email. No, that email. makes really good sense. That yeah. makes really good sense. Um, so as a goal for yourself, like this is a pretty, I mean, you've established something pretty cool. But as a performer, do you have other goals? Do you have other goals for um, BCC or like what? I mean, if you if you were like, this is what I'm seeing in your future, maybe. Like, you got the BCC thing down. Step back a little. Like you say, trust people. And then you'll have time to let somebody into your life. Because you have to take a lot. Of, it's time-consuming and very risky with your time. Like, you have to spend hours with somebody getting to know them and then deciding if you want to keep seeing them. I mean, it's very, like, it's not efficient getting yeah. to, to getting close to somebody is just not efficient. So I'm just wondering if, um, you know, that if like what, you know, what, what are you motivated for going further? Is it, you know, stepping back and having time for more people and things or things that you like to do? Or is it, do you want to, you know, do you have a performing goal or goal with your business? Just curious. 
Well, yeah, now that I'm trying to make more space and time, I mean, on the BCC side, my job is to now see about new things, new opportunities. Like we partnered with Daniel Kramer, who's a comedy producer uh, last fall and did this pitch fest uh, festival where people had their pilots selected and then performed for a lot of industry um, wow. with their favorite talent, with their friends, bringing it to life so much better than a PDF on a page, you oh know, my God. and people got real shit out of that. You know, I got yeah. reach outs. I had a pilot in that as well. So wow. BCC can be a platform. I, it's my home too and I'm, I'm always doing my own shit there challenging myself as an artist in my shows getting up and fucking around and improvising and then creating my sparkle hour show on the third Saturday of every month and then continuing to write do new things like DJ that's all that's all the, the so it's the, your the playground side. so it's you a made playground. a playground and yeah. you're happy I mean who wouldn't be that's a great playground yeah and uh and uh, and then on the, the the relationship side, I think it relates to the definition of time I was saying about earlier about how you're saying it's inefficient. It requires um, it requires unstructured time too, or it's not like we have three hours for a date. It's like the night is just ours, and we're going to see where it takes yeah. us. And um, I'm really excited about more of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, oh, so you see, like the areas that you want to grow as a performer and a writer. They're all available to you now, really, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, again, this industry is um, it's a, on an individual performer level. It's never fair. You know, mm-hmm. it's not going to be. That's why people can be driven insane mm-hmm. by it. Um, and and so you have to I, I do my best to remember that I am performing for the joy of creating something from my heart and my imagination mm, yeah. with people I love. That's why I always like to invite friends to play in my shows. Um, and with the DJ set last night, like I'm just doing this for free for fun. It's my first time. Like I'm just giving this gift because it fills me up. And when you attach like, Oh, I've got to make it. I need this thing. It just, it puts so much pressure. It's like the fuck it, love it thing of like, the more you want it, the harder it is to enjoy what you're doing. Yeah. It's a process. I'm always about that. It's a process. Like where I am with comedy right now is like, I'm studying comedy and I do do open mics and I've gotten a couple of gigs, but like, I'm just like, I want to go to open mics and, and do the open mics and write the comedy and do the open mics. And that's fun. Yeah. That process is fun. I don't have to worry about anything else. If anything happens, it does, but I don't have to worry. Like I'm not yeah, putting pressure on myself. It's the process. And and, we, and to that, we get students that are just here for fun. They're like, they're, I'm a lawyer. I want to work on my, you know, just take an improv class, work on my skills. And there are people that are like, I want to be a famous comedian and I want it yesterday. And between the gamut, you know, with the, with the latter, I really just try to get them to enjoy the act of creating for the act itself. Not right. that you don't work hard and that you hustle and that you, you strive for these things, but right. you, you know, have Absolutely. the wisdom. What's that quote? The wisdom to know what's in your control, et cetera, yeah, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. And, and the, the, what you can control, what you can, the wisdom to know the difference. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's what it really, I mean, I think the pro, because the, the only thing you have control over is the process. That's what I, that's right. what I always, that's what I always say to the kids. And to make your own opportunities. Like, yeah. I always like when people are frustrated, I'm like, start your own show. Don't wait for someone to like, note, see you, like, do your own thing and be generous. Give other people opportunities without even expecting a tit for tat, which is hard. I know. I used to be that way. I was just like, why well, put in my show? Why would they put me in their show? Right, but, right, right. But, you can't think but that the, way. But it's, it's poison. It's Absolutely. poison to I think agree. that way. So I agree. You, the more generous you are in the way you create and share and make opportunities for other people, the more organically I think it becomes 
um, a, a heart opening, life giving experience. Yeah, and then you're embedded in all the stuff out, that's out there. Um, what about? Um, I was going to say. So, is there a comedian or a performer whose career that you you know you look look to and say that's a good career or? I mean, one of my friends, Dylan Adler, is uh, taking off crazy right now. And, you know, we talk about this business being unfair, but when someone who really deserves it is successful and gets noticed and gets big opportunities, that's the greatest joy. Mm -hmm. And so seeing Dylan shine, he's a writer on, on James Corden right now. Oh, wow. He's, um, you know, but he also has been doing his own musical comedy. We both love musical comedy. Oh, yeah. I met him in a cab shared to the BCC after an open mic with him and his keyboard when he first moved here. Oh, and I'll never forget... Like, like seeing that journey, like it's inspiring to me and wow. I'm so happy for him. And I consider him a friend that like, you know, again, or happened organically over a long period of time of spending unstructured time in the Poconos fucking around in a cabin, like, you know, hanging mm -hmm. out. I don't mean fucking fucking. I mean, just like with friends, <laughs> like, you we know, don't, we don't. Um, and, um, and, and so I'm so happy and I'm, I'm admiring him and watching him blossom is just mm -hmm, very exciting to mm -hmm, me, even though mm -hmm, I'm, you know, much mm -hmm. older than him. <laughs> Did you, um, so were you like a performer kid from day one? What were you like as a kid? I'm trying to picture that. Oh fan. yeah. I was in darn Yankees in fifth grade. You know, couldn't say damn, had to say darn Yankees. <laughs> Can you believe that? That's yes, so fucking ridiculous. Um, and then uh, yeah, I was always, so were a, you always, I mean, you, you are you, you're an extrovert? You, I think so. I yeah, think I, so like, were you always like, you know, you always had friends and stuff like that? Yeah, well, I think when in my closeted, like I was playing computer games mostly in the first two years of high school and I didn't have a lot of friends. And I was actually living this alternate ego life on um, as an avatar mm. in the game EverQuest, which is the <laughs> precursor to World of Warcraft. I played a wizard and I came out in the game years before I came out in the real world as the pink pansy. And I wore this... <gasps> Flaming pink wizard robe. My name was Ailey Olin on the Prexus server. This is what I wrote my film about, um, Gamer, because it was about like how I pretended as this wizard to be this fabulous, queer, you know, fantastic wizard, literally. And then in real life, I was this closeted kid who didn't have a lot of friends. And then finally, by pretending to be the wizard after I quit the game, it gave me the courage to be a wizard in that church in real life and, wow. and to cast that spell. Wow. So were you popular on... Uh the video game the, or whatever the I was a very powerful wizard. I sold that character on eBay for a thousand dollars, and it was a buy now, and it sold in like a minute. I could have gotten way more. It I'm was like, well, spent a lot of time so on that. Impressed. No, it was it was ever cracked. It was it was a it was an addiction. No, but you but but what I'm saying is is that you had you had the nature. You knew what the formula was. I mean, it, you didn't do it. You did it naturally. Yeah, well, whatever, I, whatever, whatever mixture you had of characters and whatever it takes, you had that naturally. Yeah. So I, that I, must have given you a lot of confidence, right? And, and validation about being gay, right? Yeah. Like trying it out in a chat message, you know, being singing songs in a chat. Like I'm sure I know, I know, I annoyed a lot of people in my guild, <laughs> but it was, it was just really, you know, it was So special. you made your own opportunity is what I'm saying. You made your own opportunity to sort of grow up gay a little bit. Yeah. So anonymously. You, yeah. So what was being gay like? Um, when you were growing up, I mean, I don't know how, I don't even, I don't really have a sense. It was sense. How, very scary. I mean, it wasn't that long after Matthew Shepard and everything. It was like, you know, it was like, uh, it was, uh, or Laramie, you know, it's, it, it was, it was really, um, 
I, I, I even like emotionally feel like just how scary it was. And I, again, I'm grateful people don't have that feeling anymore. But like, you know, my mom thought I would get AIDS and I'd never be in a relationship. Oh. You know, like that was the stereotype because there weren't a lot of gay role models other than mm. like this cheeky Will and Grace show where like everyone was typed. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll say. Um, and I even remember I once an industry person told me, I'll never forget. He's like, yeah, Phil, you know, I think in this day and age, you really want to be more Will from Will and Grace than Jack. You know what I mean? Oh, and I was wow. like, God, okay. And this wasn't even that long ago. I was like, girl, we have got to move on. <laughs> you know, you want to be the freakiest, most expressed version of yourself because that's where you're going to find no one else like you. Wow. So did people know you were gay? Like, you did? were you... Were you trying to hide it at school or did people know or? I think it was a mix. My sister thought I was joking when I came out to her. She couldn't believe it. I mean, she was like 13 and a half, so whatever. But, uh, and I, and then, yeah, I think, you know, I was out in college from day one. So there was never a question about it. Had my first like gay moment in what was called the rat trap. Now mm-hmm. we got the doghouse, mm-hmm, the like pig that. bed. It was the rat trap, the basement in Willard College at mm-hmm. Northwestern. And it was this guy just making out. And I was so nervous and naive. And I just, you know, Googled what was gay. And I'll never forget, like we were making out. And I just said, are you, are you a top or a bottom? <laughs> But but I didn't mean sex. I literally was so naive. I meant, do you like to kissy kissy like on top, or do you want to be like on the bottom of the kiss? Like you know, like, who's on top? Aww. Like, and he was really turned off. He was like, we're talking about that on the first makeout, <laughs> and <laughs> I was like so ashamed. And Matt Loper, if you're out there, um, just know what I really meant. That's so cute. Yeah, it was cute. So there was. Were you comfortable being gay in college? Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. I felt um, very accepted. I mean, again, back home, it was it was very tricky. But in college, I felt very so accepted. So there weren't a lot of, like, was, oh, because you were in a Catholic school. Not in college. I mean, but no, yeah, and back I'm at talking home. about in, 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 like, middle school, high school. Yeah, I mean, I was terrified of anyone knowing I was gay in middle school. I mean, that's why I started therapy really early as I was really exhibiting signs of unhappiness that my parents didn't know how to deal with because I was closeted and containing all this built up terror and rage and fear of just like, I can't be myself. And so I was in therapy. And I'll never forget, my therapist knew. He asked me, he told me, Rick, my therapist, he's like, I have a gay son. And he was like, you know, is that something you've ever thought you might be? And I was like, no, 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 no. Oh, really? But like, he was trying, you know, I think he could tell. And then I had a therapist after that who was a Catholic therapist and encouraged my mom that I was going through a phase like did damage which is a number one therapy thing like I would I would want her to have her license revoked for what she did because she really did, thought it was a phase and I was like I just literally came out in front of an entire room of my senior class like no this is not a phase um, and how demeaning and um, condescending of yeah. you to tell my parents that so you must have a lot of feelings about the Catholic religion. Yeah. Now. No, thank you. I know there are people that do really good work in the Catholic Church, but as a whole, it's a toxic fucking organization. And they have no business telling anyone about sexuality, given the history and what they've covered up and the, the, the sexual hip, abuse that their church the has condoned and, and you know, supported. The hypocrisy. They yeah, I would imagine no that would... box to stand on. Yeah. Thank you, ma'am. The soapbox is not yours anymore. Mm-hmm. You could apologize big time and do a lot of work before anyone should give a shit. And they got to get in the 21st century. It's the totally. 21st, right? It's the 21st century. 
Last time. Yeah, that's where time. we are. <laughs> what, what is that? <laughs> they're just, you know, they're an old fucking relic. And it reminds me of the conservative backlash that's happening now to gay rights and trans rights across the U.S. Oh, and my how, God. How just like... And abortion rights. Yeah. I mean, the, the regressiveness. And um, it, it makes me so sad because if these people... Again, if you meet someone on a human-to-human level and you don't boil them down to like the stereotype of like, man, everyone's so woke. If you actually heard the, this person's story or why their pronouns are important to them you know at the end of the day is like your individual belief more important than their heart you know yeah i mean that well it's the hypocrisy of like saying it's the judgment it's a hypocrisy but you know on the bright side i'm gonna say i mean i've lived in bushwick for like about 10 years now and in my world bushwick new york this area i feel so much better about human rights Respect for 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 other people. Um, the gay the uh, comedy community is a lot more inclusive. Right. We were talking when I came up. It was like all white bros, and I was the token gay who would literally sing in every show because I was so upset that like all it was was straight bro comedy. Oh, I can, Not yeah. that straight bros don't have really unique things to say if they find a point of view, but like as a overarching, you well, that, know, that vibe. it was dominant. Dominates the word. It yeah. was like this way or the highway. And like, I remember Susan Messing, who was an incredible teacher in Chicago, she was like, Yeah, you just got to play with the boys, you know, like step uh, up. And like, now I'm just like, Thank God the BCC is like so queer friendly. So, I mix, you know, so everything friendly. So, I mean, I just think like in my, in my, my little world, my life, I feel much more um, hopeful about how uh, people relate and treat each other. I mean, I personally feel that way. I don't feel that way about necessarily society or the world or when or the, you know what's going on in the news and crap like that. But I do see, I do have some positive feelings about how how things are going. Yeah, and consciousness is is you know Martin Luther King and justice long arc of justice in bends upward over time. Things a lot more open consciousness. Things have improved. I mean, even like gay rights, like in twenty years, it's incredible. And New York, I want to give a shout out to New York fucking city because totally. I've I've lived here ten years, had a love hate relationship with it. You know, what's the L.A. shitty heaven? New York's fun hell. But like <laughs> I love new york after yeah. lockdowns because yeah. i feel like people are really grateful to be here they yeah. want to live their lives even yeah. if people are going to bed a little earlier it's that there's much more of a vibe of like we are in this together um and and yes and we're here to live and to yeah. be with each other and to, to that's why i think comedy is live shows are important right now yeah love love seeing things live so we've got just like two minutes left. So I want you to uh, promote the BCC. And I want you to tell us, like, I want to come and see your show, Sparkle and stuff like that. So tell us about BCC and tell us when we can see you. Great. Okay, you got a minute and a half. Go. Okay, our classes are year round. They start up the next session. You can jump into a level one class and improv, sketch, stand up, clown more if that appeals to you or just take a one day class. Our shows are Tuesday to Sunday nights at Eris. There's 24 shows a week. My show is the third Saturday. Uh, yeah, 24 shows. Um, and there's an third open sa- third Saturday of every month, Sparkle Hour. Come see me mm-hmm. if you'd like. And then we have uh, an open mic on Tuesdays and an improv jam on Tuesdays if you just want to come fuck around. If 
if you're a corporation, hire us. We're really worth it. <laughs> we'll change your lives. And then that's uh, comedybrooklyn.com or at comedybrooklyn on the socials. And I'm at Philip Sparkle and philipsparkle.com. Uh, they both work if you want to check out my shit. Wow, that's that's really good. You know, we could cut that out and make you a little commercial. That's Ooh. a tight That's a tight 30 seconds a minute. <laughs> um, and I, I, I really, I'm so glad you came in today. I really enjoyed our time. I did too. And thank, thank you, you for the, the questions. You were probing into things that I don't always talk about, or it was good when you called me back to something I skipped. Cause <laughs> I, I like to think that I have an open book and can say anything, but, um, there's always where I, I just believe we're always learning and we're always growing. Uh, and the yeah. second you stop learning and growing, your life gets pretty boring. I'm a hundred percent with you on that. So I just want to uh, say to uh, my listeners, thank you so much for listening to Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit. I'm here every Thursday, 2 to 3. I've got over 300 shows in my archive. You know, if you ever want um, to donate money and let me know, I can give you a shout-out. I started thinking, you know, I could be giving people shout-outs about their shows. Five bucks. You donate five bucks and not to me, to the station. I will, I will say something nice about you or at least acknowledge you and, uh, your show or your album or whatever. Okay. So you should stick around after this because we've got so much great programming today. Thursday is a really, really great day here at Radio Free Brooklyn. Dr. Lisa gets shit.